Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because that's what you're supposed to do at Easter time. What's really cool about this church, if I can just share my heart with you, is we talk about that every week. So make sure you guys keep coming to church, reading your Bibles, and our after party, which we, like if this is our Super Bowl and then there's an after party after the Super Bowl, you guys know what I'm talking about. The after party for Easter is our life groups this week and our discipleship, our evangelism. I'll be preaching just like how I'm preaching now uh, tomorrow at the Logan Square bus stop. So that's where I'll be. So your big, awesome Easter preaching pastor will be doing this at a bus stop. Getting burned. Boo, pastor, boo. But I do it out there. You know why? Because I just don't preach to crowds of amening, awesome, well-dressed people. I preach to the world that needs it. I do, I do that. So if you want to get a part of the after party, join one of the life groups. Meet me at the Logan Square train stop, man. Uh, can you take the train and meet me there, you know? Just come right off and we'll just start preaching together right around 1 or 2 o'clock. Check us out on Facebook. But here's honestly my heart as a pastor for Easter. If we could remember this day and all the days of our life, we would do much better because for us, Easter is the foundation of our whole Christian faith. I kind of tease people during Christmas season because, you know, Christmas is not really a scheduled holiday in the Bible. It's not like Jesus said, celebrate my birth by giving each other gifts, okay? Jesus never said that. First of all, it's his birthday. Church should get the gifts. That's another discussion, but we won't tell the kids that, right? Because the kids want to make sure they get their gifts on Jesus' birthday. But if we were going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, we should probably give something extra to the church. No, another offering's not coming around, but check, track me here. Christmas is not really found in the Bible other than, yeah, he was born. But what is found in the Bible is what we're going to talk about today. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is supposed to be celebrated as often as we come to church. We can do it at the time that it happened, which was the Jewish Passover. Remember, Jesus was a Jew fulfilling all of the Jewish laws and things. And then every time we take communion, death, burial, resurrection. And if you didn't know, every time you pray, you're remembering Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because you're praying to the Father in Jesus' name, believing that all of those things happened and that make that not just a quarter going into the wishing well. So open up your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. How many are ready? Can I hear I'm ready? Amen, amen, Colossians chapter 2. I'm glad that you're here today. Let's talk about the death of Jesus. Oftentimes churches have uh, the plays of Jesus being crucified. How many have seen the Passion of the Christ? How many know it's gory, it's bloody? There's churches that reenact those things. Uh, how many have ever seen a heavy set Jesus, though, in those plays? I never have. And kind of as a bigger guy, I always feel left out. Why is Jesus always skinny? Why, why don't we have a balding Jesus, okay? I think next time we do a play, if somebody does it in this church, I want a little bit heavy set, balding Jesus to be the Jesus, okay? I, I'm tired of handsome Jesus. I'm tired of strong chin Jesus taking the whips for, you know, I, kind, I just want chubby Jesus. Is that okay? But here's the deal. Oftentimes when we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we get hung up on the gruesomeness of the cross, and I even teach my children this because I have replicas of the crown and the nails and the cat of nine tails, which was used as a whip. And we've all seen a cross, obviously. But I teach my children this on Good Friday. And sometimes they get so tied into, oh, he took this for us and he took that for us. It's almost like we're painting a picture like 
Because Jesus suffered so much physically, that means he took our sins on the cross. That's not true. There was actually some real crazy torture devices in the medieval times, maybe even worse than the cross. The stretching racks, the peeling your skin racks. Uh, things could go on more than a weekend of Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus getting crucified and buried was like kind of like a weekend. Some people were tortured for years and, and really tormenting ways. The idea of the cross, because I was reading it again this morning, isn't for us to listen to this real gruesome picture and be like, oh, that's so gruesome, and my God's so awesome, he took that for us. No, the death of the cross is not glorified in its gruesomeness. It's glorified in what happened there. Paul now looks back at it and teaches us how we should look at the cross. So, yes, yeah, see a movie like Passion of the Cross and understand how he suffered for you. But it's really not supposed to make you look back and go, oh, D, to look at how he did that. Because Braveheart got his entrails taken out, okay? And it could be that in a lot of places. It's not that Jesus was tortured as a martyr that makes him so special. It's the theological implications. It's what happens spiritually that makes the difference. Paul looks back at it. Now, let me just ask you this real quick. Who's the author, Paul, and why is he talking about Jesus? Paul was once a persecutor of the church. Paul was real upset with Christians because he didn't believe in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. But he had an encounter with God that transformed his life. Can I just say this right now? If you're here today and you're not quite sure yet you believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the author we're reading from in the Bible used to be you. And he's now convinced of it. God can convince us. Here's the thing. We have to seek, though. We have to knock and we have to ask. Because the Bible says those who seek, find. Those who knock, have the door open. And those who uh, seek, ask, knock. Which one did I forget? Seek, ask, knock. I'm sorry. I'm trying to go through the scripture. If you seek, you'll find. There we go. If you knock, the door is open. If you ask, you shall receive. There it is. Now, listen. You can't dig in your heels and go, prove it to me, Jesus. You can't do that. You have to say, show me, Jesus. See the difference? So if you're here today, you don't understand the cross. Paul used to be there. Now he understands it, but he had an encounter with God. You can have one. God can do that. But most people have it through seeking, asking, and knocking. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. If you got your Bible or a phone open, somebody say, I'm there. If you're only looking at the karaoke screen, say, I'm lame. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Somebody did it, though. Pastor, I say whatever you say. I trust you, Pastor. Why you put me out like that? That's not right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It's good to have your own Bible, though, just, just in case something gets messed up there, right? When you were dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the what? Nailing it to the cross, thank you. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Somebody say the cross. Do you see the picture that Paul paints us here now? He's not saying when you look at the cross, think of all this gruesome stuff happening and a man being tortured. True story happened. But when he says when you look at the cross, 
you're looking at something more than a person being tortured. What does he say you're supposed to be looking at? Your indebtedness on the cross. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? When you talk to other religions, they all agree outside of Christianity on how you can be saved. This is their method of salvation. If you do more, you can be forgiven of more or become a better person. And oftentimes when you talk to them about your method of forgiveness, they'll say God's a really mean, sadistic God. They'll say, you mean your Bible says for us to be forgiven, Jesus, God's son, had to be crucified and beat up? That would be like me going to your house, beating up your kid to give Anahi forgiveness. What kind of psychopath is your God? Why doesn't he just give Anahi forgiveness? Why does he got to beat, crucify his own son to be forgiven? Why can't he just tell everybody, you're forgiven? And the religions of this world will tell you that's what makes their religion better. Christianity is a sadistic psychopath God who tortures his own son to forgive people when all he has to do is just say, I forgive you. You're forgiven. No big deal. Nobody has to die. No child has to be sacrificed. All you have to do is be told, God says you're forgiven. And then what they'll say is on judgment day, how you'll know you've gotten forgiven is if you did more good than you did bad. You could call it karma. That's what the Hindus, Buddhists believe, that then if you've done more good than you've done bad, you'll be reincarnated as a rich person. If you've done bad, you'll be reincarnated as a filthy animal, okay? And so now you begin to understand their mindset. Islam says if you've done more good than you've done bad, then you get to be in paradise. And yes, they believe in having the men multiple wives. They don't really say what the wives get to do in heaven other than that, but that's pretty much a man's paradise. And, though, and so at this point, the world religions think they got Christianity. Christianity has a psychotic, child-abusing father and doesn't know how to treat his people. Well, the question we have to ask those other religions, and even atheists and others will say this to us, is where does sin go? Now, we understand what sin is. We know what a lie is. We know what thievery is. We know what it's like to lust. But let me ask you a question. When you lust, where does that go? I know it's an action, but it's also an evil thing, isn't it? Where does that evil go? All the evil that Hitler did, where does it go? You see, what they don't answer is the problem of justice. See, our God, the creator God, not a false God, has justice. And so that means things that are done wrong must be paid for, and evil itself has to be done away with. Evil is actually a metaphysical thing. It's a spiritual reality that exists, and you can sometimes see it in people. It's not just that they're doing evil, they're evil. Where does that go? Well, a person dies, now where does it go? They've done the act, where does it go? Does Hitler's evil ever get reconciled or does it just simply disappear? 
You see, Christianity teaches us that evil actually exists and that if it's not dealt with, it will continue to exist. And that sin is in not only your body, but it's in your soul. And if it is not rid from you and destroyed from you, it will have you for eternity. Everybody say the cross. Now do you know why the cross is so beautiful? Where did my lying go on the cross? Where did my evil go on the cross? Where did your evil go on the cross? And what happened to it there? What happened to your legal indebtedness? The Bible says it was nailed there. Your sins had to be paid for. You might say, well, what about that good work thing? Can I do enough good to outweigh my bad? Let me ask you, if you have a heart condition, can you give yourself a heart transplant? Can you be your own heart donor? Let me ask you, if you have AIDS, can you be your own blood transfusion person? Can you do that for yourself? How would you ever do enough good to get rid of your evil if you have evil inside of you? How could you ever get it out of you to do one good thing that's not already tainted by the evil you're trying to get out of? Meaning if you have tar on your hands, how can you take a shower? You just make yourself more dirty. The idea is we can't give ourselves our own heart transfusion or blood transfusion or heart transplant. The idea is we can't wash ourselves and evil actually exists and it exists in souls. It exists in angelic fallen spirits now known as demons. And the Bible says it had to be taken care of for mankind to get a second chance at a new life. And so when we look at the cross... We see Jesus dying and blood being poured out. And we're supposed to say, there goes my sin. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he didn't say, here's a great teacher that will tell us many wonderful things, though he did. Jesus was a great teacher. He didn't say, here's a great miracle worker, though Jesus was a great miracle worker. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Why would John the Baptist shout out, Lamb of God, while looking at a person? Was he hungry? And is this a cartoon where Jesus turned into the mirage of what he was hungry for? No, he shouted out, the Lamb of God, because during Passover time, this time in the Jewish calendar, animals were killed, blood was spilt, so that people could understand where evil goes. You ever heard the term scapegoat? That was actually a part of the Jewish law. They would put all of the curses of their people's sins onto one of the animals and release it to die in the wilderness, and the other one they would kill and sacrifice. And it was supposed to be a bloody mess so that they would see evil goes because uh, animals die because evil goes to the core of life. And for evil to be paid for, blood must be spilled. Life must end. And if God didn't want us to die and go to hell, he had to become the Lamb of God to take away our sins. So if you look at my shadow, if I can find it here, let's face this way. Everybody see my shadow down there? Can you see it? The shadow comes first. Where's my hand in relationship to the shadow? The shadow is first, right? The shadow, does everybody see the shadow is first right there, right there? 
Can I, can I get some help on this illustration? Okay. Shadow's right there. My hand's behind it, right? The Bible says all of those sacrifices teaching us blood atones for sin. Something must die for us to live. The shadow was those things, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, was coming to be the reality. If Jesus never would have come, the shadow never would have saved. The temporary solution of animal sacrifice was because Jesus was the lamb slain, get this, before the foundation of the world. So some people ask, if he knew it was all going to get messed up anyways, why did he create us? Because let me ask you a question. If you had a choice, everyone here, if you had a choice between having a puppy that was made out of a computer program that you would touch and say, bark, you would touch and say, sit, you had a choice out of a computer-operated robot or a real puppy, a puppy made out of a robot, a robot puppy, or a, a, robot, a robot puppy or a real puppy, what would you choose? A real puppy. Why? Because the robot puppy would get boring real quick. Bark. Give me a kiss. Sit down. Okay, I'm done with this thing now. A real puppy goes everywhere, right? Why did God allow evil? Because he wanted choice. The product of choice was going to be evil. Why did he allow then evil? Because he would pay the price for it. Who suffered the most out of our bad decisions? Us as a human race or God? God. Why? Because on that cross, he took collectively all of our evil. There are some of you who have faced real evil in life, and you've felt the pain of that, but you haven't had to feel that pain with Genghis Khan's pain, with Hitler's pain. You, you get what I'm saying? You had a limit to the capacity of evil you could face. God creating a world of free creatures cost him coming to heaven, dying on the cross, and taking the full capacity of evil. That's why he said from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. They didn't know that as they were crucifying him, he was taking the very sins of why they were crucifying him, their bitterness, their jealousy, their anger. And so for that, we find forgiveness. How many are happy for the cross? Amen. Think about that when you see the cross. The Bible says, oh, I love it. You guys clap on Easter. That's awesome. Can we do that next week? I say good points and you guys clap. That was really cool. Uh, <laughs> the Bible then says he disarmed the powers and authorities. Now, I want you to think about this because a lot of times we talk to people that really don't think there's a devil. They think maybe there's evil, like we said. Maybe there's a thing called evil. There's always a yin and maybe there's a yang. Okay, there's bad and there's good. Okay, but do they understand? And I want to ask you, do you understand? Evil is not only a thing, but there are personifications, embodiments of evil, pure evil. The Bible says there is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you understand that? Because the devil is determined to give us evil. And what he'll do is try to deceive us, and he'll put us under his power. And by him putting us under his power, he makes us his slaves, and we become his slaves, and he becomes the master. And one of his greatest deceptions is that he wants to teach us and show us that his way of living actually works. And so he doesn't come right out and show us that sin is bad. He thinks 
He, he thinks if he can get us to show us, to, see, to get us to see that sin is pleasurable, that it's temporarily good, he'll keep us under his power. So in other words, we're in a jail cell that he put us in, but it's locked from the inside. As long as he deceives us, he can keep us right where we're at. But the Bible says you shall know the truth, and when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So what he does is he comes against the truth with his lies as a toothless foe. He's a roaring lion without teeth. Jesus knocked him out on the cross. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he intimidates to keep you in that cage. And so what he does is he gives you ideas that are birthed in Satanism and evil, and he tries to make them seem pleasurable. It's okay. You can kill the child in your womb. That's really not a person. You're in school. You should keep your career going. It's okay if you join that gang. You need to make someone else feel like how you felt. It's okay if you sleep with that person you're not married to and have sex with them because you love each other. Marriage is just a certificate, something man does. It's okay to be racist. They're not as good as you. It's okay to be bitter. They don't deserve your forgiveness. And so what I like to call this is the Truman Show. Has anybody ever seen the Truman Show? It's a Jim Carrey movie that's based on this idea that people came up with. They said, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a reality show of somebody's life and they didn't even know they were in it? So they take Jim Carrey, the character, and they build a whole stage, a whole world around him to make it look like he's in a real-world scenario. But he's really just in a Hollywood prop set with cameras everywhere. And so what he thinks are his parents are actors. What he thinks are his friends are actors. What he thinks is the milkman or the, the postal man, they're all just paid actors. I just wonder if there's anyone here that has some people in their life acting like friends. I wonder if there's anyone here that the devil has sent into people into your life to get you to think this is really what life's about, but they're really just agents to keep you living in that make-believe world. They convince you that it all works here. Gender reassignment works here. Homosexuality works here. Th these kind of worldly ideas work here. It's working over there, at least for Oprah. But what the devil is not telling you is this is a lie and a delusion. It wasn't until he found out that something was wrong that he began to break down the walls. They even had a false sky and sunset in that world he was living in. That he realized there was a different world out there. Can I tell you what Christianity is like after the cross? It's like tearing down the false world you've been living in and watching the devil lose all of his power and authority to deceive you. That's why, young people, we don't fall for the same things you're falling for. You're living in the Truman Show, and we've already made it out of it. Those of us here who are mature Christians, that's why we're not missing church next week, because we've already realized what it's like living week by week in our own wisdom. Listen, that's why people are here today, because they understand that. And if you don't, I want to ask you a question. Have you examined the world you're living in? 
Because if you think about it, the devil can deceive you for what, about 80 years? But then it all falls apart after you die. And then you'll see he was a liar from the beginning. I thank God that when I see the cross, I see my Jesus making a public spectacle out of the devil, tearing down all of his lies, taking away all of his authority so that now we can be children of God, no more slaves of Satan and his evil. Amen? Come on, somebody. That's exciting. Woo, I'm glad I came to church. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Somebody say the burial. burial. Amen. The burial of Jesus is an historical fact. You know, everybody that now looks back on Jesus' life and tries to say he didn't exist and was a myth, they don't know what they're talking about. When you talk to historians and universities all over this country and the world, whether they're Christian, Jewish, doesn't matter what religion they are, there are facts, minimal facts that everybody agrees on. It's not even a faith-based thing to them. It's just like studying the life of Shakespeare. Jesus existed. He was a real person. Jesus walked around doing great things to the point where he was crucified. True. They believe that. Jesus then was buried. They believe that. Why would the disciples name a person, Joseph of Arimathea, and name where he was buried in the place that they were going to tell the story he has resurrected if they were trying to say a lie? Aren't lies usually a little bit less believable than that? Like, oh, he was buried at some unnamed grave way away from here, and you couldn't check on it even if you found it. But our disciples say, oh, we know where he was buried, Joseph. He's right over here from Arimathea. Oh, yeah, Joe, I know Joe. Yeah, that's Joe. At his burial site, about a few blocks from here. You know why? Because that grave was empty. But what happened in that meantime? Sometimes real sassy people like to ask the preacher. They go, man, if God died for us, then who was in heaven if he was dead? The first thing people don't understand is the Trinity. We don't believe the Father died. We don't believe the Spirit died. The son died. Father and spirit still chilling. But hold on. What about the son and his death? When the son died, did he stop existing? Is that what we believe as Christians, that when the body dies, you stop existing? No. The Bible says when you are gone from the body, you're instantly with the Lord. So guess what happened when Jesus' body died? Jesus kept existing. (laughs) He kept being the son of God. There was never a point on the cross at his burial where he stopped existing as the son of God. No more than if I come out of a spacesuit, I stop existing. If I take off my clothes, do I stop existing? No, I keep existing. Amen. When Jesus took off flesh, he kept existing. Now, what happened in that burial? Once again, we're supposed to look at it through the eyes of the gospel. Look at how Paul talks about it. Romans Chapter 6. He says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? See, at that time, people got a little smart with Christianity. They kind of figured out the loophole. Okay, so let me get this. Jesus died for sins. Yep, all sins, past, present, and future. That means he doesn't have to ever have to die again. Yep, all sins. So that means he already knows the sins I'm going to commit in the future. Yep, okay, so I can commit as many as I want and then be forgiven of sins? Uh, no, kind of, that's not how it works. Paul stops him right here and goes, 
are we supposed to just keep on sinning now that we can keep getting more of that blood, that grace that came from the cross? Is that our mindset now as Christians is we got this credit card? Because it says he took our debtedness. It kind of uses that legal term or transactional term for businesses. It says he took our debtedness, which can refer to our crimes against God, our sins. He took it all. So are we now supposed to run our credit card and just swipe all the sin we want? Man, my debts have been paid, and Bill Gates is my father. Man, I'm buying that. I'm buying that. I'm going to that website and looking at that. I'm going to go, oh man, I'm going to find a new wife. Oh, man, I'm going to do whatever I want. I got all the forgiveness I need. No, Paul says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Somebody say no. Come on, say no. Thank you. No, we don't do that. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Isn't that awesome that baptism is a symbol of death, burial, resurrection? Just like communion is of the body and the blood? Really cool, huh? Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Keep going. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We are literally to look at the burial of Jesus as the burial of our old person. When I came to Christ, I was 18 years old. It was November 5th, 1995 at my mother's kitchen table. Jesus Christ transformed my life even though I had so many questions, so many doubts. Literally, I'm the guy that had a mustard seed of faith. If you want to know who's like that, I was that person. The only amount of faith I had was this. I will die unless something else happens in my life. I'll give this a shot. Within moments, my life was changed, and I began to fall in love with Jesus, and I've been following him now over 20 years. But the Bible says when I think about Jesus being buried, I'm supposed to not just think about it like some Jesus wrapped up chilling. I'm supposed to look at that and go, that's me in there. Just like how I saw my sins nailed to the cross, I'm now supposed to see that's Joe circa 1995 in there. But you see, some of us don't do that. Here's another movie reference. You guys ready? You guys ready? Can I get some movie references today? Don't think I'm backslidden now, okay? I'm just trying to keep it easy for our guests. No, I'm kidding. This just came to me in first service. You all ever heard of Weekend at Bernie's? I'm really old now, guys. You guys don't know about this, okay? But for those who have heard of it, come on. Have you heard of Weekend at Bernie's? It's a silly movie. Probably wouldn't recommend it to go home and watch. Much better things to watch. But the whole premise of the show is simple. Some guys go to hang out with their friend. He's a little bit older, dude. He dies, and they believe it's their fault, and they're going to get in trouble if, they find, if people find out that Bernie died. That's his name is Bernie. So what they have to do now throughout the movie is make Bernie act like he's alive or pretend to be alive as they go places. So they try to go golfing. Bernie's in the golf cart. Bernie falls out because Bernie's dead, obviously. That's the kind of premise of the show. Can, can I ask you a question, though? Is there anybody here playing Weekend at Bernie's with your old self? Is there anybody walking around going, hey, I want you to meet Nancy 2002 as you meet Nancy 2019. This is my dead version. Hey, do you want to meet Jessica of 2003? 
Hey, this is Cielo of 2010 or whenever you know, these young people get saved. Do you want to meet the old me? The old me is stinky. The old me doesn't get along well. The old me really makes a lot of trouble. But I don't know how to get rid of the old me. See, the burial of Jesus is to tell us we're not supposed to be having a weekend at Bernie's. We're supposed to be living a resurrected life with Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to be carrying around our old self. We're actually supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin. I've said this before in this church. Am I sinless? No, but I've sinned less since I've met Jesus. And there's not supposed to be two me's, like an alive me and a dead version of me. There's actually supposed to be one me, not a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. There's supposed to be a one you, a new creation. And what's beautiful about that is that we don't do it to ourselves. We could never do it to ourselves. We don't have enough strength to put to death this old person. We don't even know where that person lives. How can I go find that old person and put it to death? It's certainly not suicide. God doesn't want us to kill our bodies. It's a spiritual thing. It's when God shows you there's a new way of living, a new mindset. And so now when your past comes to haunt you, you are to put it back in that grave. Now, here's what we see about Jesus in the grave. When Jesus came out the grave, he came out glorified because the Bible says that while he was on earth, he concealed himself, and when he came out, he came out glorified now to show us who he is. We come out sanctified. When we accept Christ, our lives are changed. We now look different. When do we get glorified? When we get a new body. That's what Paul teaches about resurrection. Let's go to our last passage in Philippians. How many are learning something today? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. I know some of you might be like, man, I know all of this. But it's good to remind ourselves of this because there's power in the death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? I believe in that power. That's why I'm here today. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 is a lengthy passage. And it comes from Paul again. I just chose him today to be our teacher And the idea is now, how are we to look at the resurrection? Once again, let's go through it. If the death is where we died, if the burial is where we're buried, how are we supposed to look at the resurrection? Where we get new life. You see, Jesus was never meant to be a one-off. Jesus was meant to be the new stamp of humanity. What Jesus did was reset us. When you think about the resurrection, why was that so important? Why didn't Jesus just become Casper the ghost and go float away somewhere? Why did he actually walk around and let Thomas touch him? Why does he have meals with them? Why does he spend time with them showing, I am a flesh and bone person? We'll talk about why there's not blood there in a moment. Why does he do that? Because how was Adam and Eve created? Were Adam and Eve created with six wings and as angels in heaven? Were we created as little naked baby angels in heaven? cherubs as they called which is not true but is that how we were created no we were created in flesh we were created on the earth we were meant to be here but when our body dies where do we go now the bible says heaven right why do we go to heaven because we don't have a body to stay on earth anymore what does the resurrection of jesus say we get the bodies back And they're glorified. And then the Bible says, heaven comes to earth. That's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it what? Is in heaven. So heaven's supposed to come to earth. Think about it like this. A lot of people on earth want to go to heaven, 
But everybody in heaven wants to come to earth. Why do they want to come back? Why does Abraham want to come back? And by the way, not as ghosts, because if you meet a relative as a ghost in your house, just say, leave in Jesus' name, and you'll see how quick that's not your grandma, okay? Everybody say amen. Don't fall for that. That's not grandma. Spirits can take different shapes and have different voices. Don't fall for that. Say, go in Jesus' name, and you'll see grandma make noises you ain't never heard before, okay? Why does heaven want to come back to earth? Because God made heaven to be on earth. We are the ones that sinned. That's why we have to die. That's why our blood must be poured out. That's why we must turn back to dust. And some Christian religion, uh, uh, sects of Christianity, teach don't, you know, don't cremate yourself because then the resurrection won't be good for you. And I'm like, if Jesus made us out of dust before, he can make us out of dust again. So cremate me, amen, and to save the money, honey. We don't need a burial site for me. Just cremate me. But that's the point is that Jesus gives us back the body. Let's look how Paul says it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. How many have given up everything to follow Jesus? God's given you back things. We call those blessings, but how many are thankful you gave it all up? What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Remember we talked about the Truman Show? Paul says without Christ, it's all garbage. I have to have Christ in his reality. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Can I just pause here and make sure everybody knows the gospel, the good news? Jesus died so that you might live. Place your faith in him and you'll be forgiven of your sins and given a new life. Amen. That's the gospel. Paul brings up the gospel there, and he says, man, that's what I believe. This is what I'm doing because I believe it. Now look at verse 10. I want to know Christ. How many want to know Jesus? Amen. Yes, to know the power of his what? His resurrection and participation in his sufferings. We'll talk about that. Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now listen to what he says, verse 12. Not that I've already attained all this or that I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it, but one thing I do, let's read it together, starting with forgetting. One, two, three. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He said, I press on towards that. Why do you think that was what he pressed towards? Because he understood even if he did great things on earth, it would all go away. It's all going to go away, folks. Did you know that? I don't want to scare you today, but death is coming to us all. The one thing about life is we're all going to die. The Bible says that after we die, we're going to face judgment. 
We're going to be given eternal happiness with God or punishment based on whether or not we had faith in Jesus, not based on whether or not we tried to do good works, not based on whether or not we did it by ourselves and, and you know, pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps, but whether or not we trusted that on that cross our sins were nailed there in the grave, our old self was buried, and now we're new in Christ waiting to come back to rule and reign with them. Do you have faith in that? I wish I could show it to you in a laboratory. I wish I could uh, prove it to you more than the words of the Bible. But even then, the Bible says, if you wouldn't have faith, you probably wouldn't believe. Adam and Eve saw God. They walked in a perfect garden, had a perfect marriage, and they still thought the knowledge of good and evil was worth a try. My heart is like Paul today. Not that I'm better than anybody here today, but I've gotten old enough now, and I know some of you can relate to this, where if I don't have Christ, it's not worth it. I can have a degree, but if I don't have Christ in my education, the pursuit is not worth it. I can have the most beautiful family, and trust me, nobody is as hot as my wife. She's the hottest mama in town, and my kids are the best kids, but without Christ, it doesn't satisfy. Have you ever noticed how everything tends to death? Everything. Not just like the literal body that's shedding skin, dying, hair falling out. But have you ever noticed just like your hobbies, your desires, they all just tend toward death. I mean, just go back to your high school years. What was so passionate in your life? Man, if I could get my own apartment, if I could have my own job, if I could have all that. What happened when you finally got all of that? What happened to all that passion? It died. All the people who want to start a family, I got to get married, I got to get married. What happens to most people in their marriage without God? Passions die. Oh, if I just get this job, if I just get this career, if I just have this new toy, if I have this new vacation home, what happens when you get it? Passions die. Even in our own hearts, things die. Have you noticed you've given up on some of your own dreams and let yourself down from diets to plans you've made. And sometimes you look at the mirror as an older person and you can look at yourself and go, what have I become? What's a midlife crisis but people just getting older, looking at themselves going, there's more death now than I see life. What Paul is saying here is we're not supposed to be depressed. We're not supposed to get all discouraged now and say, well, what do I do then, pastor? Just sit all as a lump on a log. No, we're supposed to pursue after the resurrection of Jesus and all that we do so that life comes to our marriage. Life comes to our children. Life comes to our education. Life, life. We're supposed to have hope. Listen to this. We're supposed to have hope beyond the scope of human limitations. We're supposed to go, yeah, I know. I'll catch a fish. I'll eat it. And that's what fishing is. But there's life in the hobby today because I'm going out with my friends. Oh, I've done an Easter service before. I've preached. They come. They leave. Week after Easter, back to normal. Oh, but there's life here today. I'm happy that they're here. We live in the moments that we have. Because the moments that we have are gifts of God to experience life. But there's something else that we're going to experience as Christians, and Paul is very clear about it. He says, I want to participate in the resurrection, but also in Christ's sufferings. What kind of sufferings did Jesus have on the cross? Do you know that the Bible says he took all of our sicknesses there? He took all of our sorrows there and all of our sins 
There will be sufferings in Christianity. There will be times, listen to me, friends, that your body may turn against you and kill you from the inside out. You ever watch somebody die of cancer? We have people here who have lost family members. Have you been around those people? And their body betrays them. The cells don't work. There's suffering in that. But the Bible says, in knowing Christ, I can see that he shares in my suffering. So I never shed a tear of physical suffering without the Jesus from the cross going, I feel your pain. I feel the pain of cancer. I feel the pain of amnesia and Alzheimer's disease, which my grandmother had. I feel the pain of childbirth, uh, birth, uh, death and childbirth. And so my question is, will we go through our sufferings seeing Christ who shares in them, or will we let our sufferings blind us from Christ? I don't know about you, but I've had the privilege of losing people I loved, but they loved Jesus. Of course, I wish they were still here. I wish that they would have lived longer, but I've had the privilege of watching them go, showing me that we shouldn't fear even death itself. I've told you the story about my aunt, and one of the things that she taught me is that as she was suffering, she didn't want to see me suffer. The moment I came in and I see her on the hospice bed as a shadow of her former self, I, she could see the shock on my face. She instantly started talking to me. Don't, don't look at my body. Look at me. Don't cry. How are you doing? How are the kids doing? What was she showing me in her sufferings? Is that Christ is greater. Life overcomes death. She gave me so much courage that I hope when it's my time to suffer, that I'll be able to see Christ in his resurrection. Because one day, my friends, suffering comes to an end. And I've shared it before in this church. Don't let whatever you suffer now, no matter how great it might be, no matter how true the pain is, to take away the eternal glory to be given to you. Because after my aunt passed, she went to heaven. And guess what? She's there waiting for a new body. And what kind of body does she get now? A glorified body like Jesus. Jesus said, it's not a flesh and blood, it's a flesh and bone. Why is there now no more blood? Because glory runs through our veins. The glory of God runs through our veins in the resurrected body. The scientists today, they're always looking for that cure of all sicknesses, that we can get the fountain of life. They'll never find it because this body will be cursed until it dies because of sin. But when it is resurrected, the glory of God will infuse it with immortality. And as he lives, we will live forevermore. And you want to talk about that glory dial? The Bible doesn't say it just stays at 10. We go from glory to glory to glory to glory. God is going to continually increase the glory dial for all of eternity. There was so much glory on Adam and Eve and their first body that was only flesh and blown, filled with the glory of God, didn't even know they were naked. The Bible says we were meant to house glory. You were meant to hold and contain the tangible presence of God. 
that captures every part of my imagination. I hope it does for you today because that last part is what we're supposed to have in our heart as we pursue it. We are straining towards that now. We're doing this for that purpose up ahead. I'm running hard now for that day that is soon coming. I'm not saying I'm saved by good works, but I want to be saved to do good works. I want that day when my race is over for me to be told, well done, good and faithful servant. And when I come back in a glorified body, I want to have rewards, as the Bible says, treasures and mansions for the glory of God for eternity. In other words, can I say it like this? We're supposed to meet the resurrected Lord at the empty tomb and live a resurrected life. Is there anybody here today that wants to catch, catch a revy from the season? And that's why Passover is during this seasonal change. Does anybody want to catch a revy here? It's time for new things. It's time for new things in your life. It's time for you to experience the power of God in ways you have never experienced. Because if there is hell on earth, and I know we have experienced it, but trust me, this is not all there is because it can get a hell of a lot worse. Are you listening? This is not hell on earth. But if we can see the evil here, guess what we can have, everybody? We can have heaven on earth. We can meet Jesus at that empty tomb and say the same power that raised him from the dead. Get me up out of work and bring heaven to my job tomorrow. Get me up. Come on, let's go to school, Jesus, and let's bring new life to my friends. Let's go, Jesus, to my family and get them all saved today at Easter dinner. Because there's a tomb to meet Jesus at to start new life. And there's new life all around you to help you catch it. Flowers are budding. Trees are budding. And every time you see that, you should see your dreams coming alive. You should see your purpose being rejuvenated. You might have been through a winter that wouldn't let you go. It might have even snowed in April. April, come on. But there's a resurrection coming. There's a spring coming. There is a sunshine coming of the glory of God. And I know that you and I believe it. I know you and I believe it right now. That's why we're here. Can I ask you to believe it in sufferings? Can I ask you to believe it in rejection? Can I ask you to believe it on hard days? Can I ask you to believe it when things don't go your way? Because that's what Paul said. He said, I don't consider myself yet taking hold of it, but I do this one thing. I forget the past. I got to step out the past so I can step into the future because I'm going to strain towards what is ahead. I want the goal to win that prize. If you believe it, can we stand up on Easter Sunday and give it up for Jesus? Come on. Come on, somebody. Shout it out as the band comes. Hallelujah. Glory, glory, glory. Glory a Dios. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus. Let's pray as the band and altar workers come. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, there is new life. Jesus, we meet you at that empty tomb today, and we say, let's do life together. I know there might be suffering, Jesus, as a Christian, but I don't suffer alone, God. I suffer with someone who knows my pain and hears my prayers and gives life every time I ask for it. Right now, as we're beginning to close this service, I'm going to pray for a few folks here today, and these altar workers who are coming up are 
awesome people that would love to pray with you as well if you would so desire. And that is for the first group. If you've come here and you haven't met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've heard about maybe the cross and the burial and resurrection before, but this is something new to you to actually experience the power of those things. Would you come forward even right now? We'll pray with you. No one will 